Amen. We'll go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, grab your Bibles. Uh, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one somewhere right around you. That's our gift to you. Um, grab that, 1 John chapter 3. We want our eyes on the Word of God together this morning. And, and we're going to be just continuing our walk through the book of 1 John today. And uh, one of the things we've seen as we've been walking through 1 John together is that uh, believers, true children of God, are to be marked by certain things. That there are certain things that ought to be true of us as children of God, as part of the family of God. And so this idea of marked, I, I just went to the definition, looked that up, and the, 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 the word marked just simply means it's, this, uh, it's an evident sign. It's a clear and evident sign that something is true of you. And so it got me thinking about ways that, that people close to me are marked. And so I want to show just a couple examples of some ways that maybe were marked this morning. Uh, you can see this first one here on the screen. Uh, tattoos, and I want to focus specifically on uh, what that person has uh, tattooed on their leg. Anybody know what that represents? Iron Man, baby. Uh, and so if you don't know what this is, um, this is someone who has a little bit of crazy in them. Uh, so, so you swim over two miles, and then you get out of the water, and you hop on a bike, and you go and you bike over 100 miles, and that's not enough. So then you jump off your bike and you start running. And then you run a full marathon. And then you're done. And then you collapse into bed for the next month. My brother-in-law has run and completed a marathon. And he's got a tattoo like this. Uh, this is not his, but that's an Ironman uh, athlete. So you see someone with that, you know that they have completed an Ironman triathlon. What about this one? What about this? You see this on cars sometimes. What's this mean? Who's marathon. marathon, yeah. So... Um, which is an impressive feat, maybe not next to an Ironman triathlon, but uh, still all the same marathons are impressive to be able to complete. We just had two of the guys on our staff run the Chicago Marathon last weekend, and uh, it was really cool. You can download the Chicago Marathon app, and we could track them, and so my wife and I sitting on our couch eating pizza got to watch them finish. And that's my kind of running. This maybe marks my life more recently, 26.2 Oreos I can eat in one sitting. I've uh, been training for that one. Uh, then this one, you, you probably recognize this, Harvest Bible Chapel in the South. Some of you have this on their car. Uh, some of you shouldn't have this on your car. Uh, so just be careful. When, they, when you're driving, you have that on your car, just know that you are marked as you drive. Uh, these are all silly examples, but the reality is each of us in some way, shape, or form is marked. There's some things that are evident and true about us that people can see. And we've seen all throughout the book of 1 John that there are ways that we as children of God are to be marked. And we've seen these in the three themes of 1 John. And you can see these on the screen. We've talked about these a lot. But, but true believers are marked by belief in the true Jesus. That, that one of the things that ought to be true about us as believers is we're marked by belief in the true Jesus. You see, the third one is true believers don't live in a pattern of sin and disobedience. We ought to be marked not by patterns of sin and disobedience, but marked by patterns of growth in righteousness and holiness. And then secondly, we see here highlighted, true believers are marked by love for one another. 
True believers ought to be marked by love for one another. And so it's at this point in the book of 1 John that John begins to take a shift. And really the second half of this book of 1 John, we're going to be focusing a lot on the reality that we as children of God are to be marked by love for one another. That we are to be marked by love and especially and particularly love for the family of God. And so in our text this morning, we're going to be jumping into that together. We're going to see uh, John calls us into a life marked by love for one another. And he's going to unpack this for us in three ways. We're going to start by looking at what love is not. He's going to lead us through the negative first. And then we're going to look at some ways that love fleshes itself out in our life, in our text this morning. And all the while, we're going to be wrestling with this idea. That if someone was to follow you in your life, if someone was to follow you to work, if someone was to follow you in your home, if someone was to follow you into conversations you have throughout the day, would they say your life is marked by love, particularly love for other followers of Jesus? When people come into our gathering, into our church, would they say that this is a body that is marked, that is, that is recognizable by the love that we have for one another? Are you and I, are we marked by love? And so we're going to wrestle through that together this morning. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump in our text. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, the time that we get just to walk through this. And Lord, I just pray that um, you would speak through me this morning, that as we leave here, uh, it would not be any individual on stage that would be on people's minds, but it would just be Jesus. And so, Lord, would you do that work? Holy Spirit, move and work uh, in our hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. It says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And so here at the beginning of this text, John is telling his audience, he's saying, hey, the, the, the gospel message that you heard from the beginning, it, it included, yes, Jesus laying his life down, dying on the cross, raising again, but then the implications of that are that we ought to then love one another. We are to love the family of God. This is the message you've heard from the beginning when you first heard the gospel message. And now John is going to spend the rest of our text this morning unpacking for us what this love looks like. And as we said already, he's going to start with the negative. We're going to start by looking at what this love is not. And so pick it up with me here in verse 12. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so clearly here in this text, John is is drawing a line in the sand for us that he's done very consistently throughout the book of 1 John. I would imagine John is a very black and white kind of person. John is the kind of person who would say there's a right way to do things, there's a wrong way to do things, end of story. How many of you are like that? Very black and white, very there's right, there's wrong, that's it. The rest of us were artists, right? We live in the gray. John is very black and white. And there's certainly some issues that can be gray, but he says this one is very clear. There's a line drawn in the sand, and we as children of God are to be marked by love. And he says that very clearly here in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we what? We love the brothers. 
verse 14 continues, and he says, whoever does not what? Love abides in death. And so he says, if you, if you look at your life and it's characterized by love for followers of Jesus, you've passed out of death into life. And in order to flesh this out for us, John shines the spotlight all the way back to almost the very beginning of our Bibles to a story found in Genesis chapter 4. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. And so many of us are probably familiar with the story. Uh, For those of you who are not, let me just give you a quick refresher. So Cain and Abel, they were the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel were brothers. And so Cain and Abel grew up together. Uh, Cain worked the fields. Abel tended to the sheep. And so uh, at a certain point in their life, they they got to a point where they said, you know what, we want to bring an offering to the Lord. We, we, want, we want to worship the Lord. We want to bring an offering to him. And so they did. And so Cain brought um, an offering from the field. Abel brought an offering of animal sacrifice. And God looked at the offering of Abel and accepted it. He, scripture says he regarded it. And it says he looked at the offering that Cain brought. And he did not regard that. And so God went to Cain and he called him to repentance. God went to Cain and he said, Cain, turn from your sin. And instead, Cain was filled with hatred and anger and selfishness toward his brother to the point where he calls his brother into the field and he murders and takes the life of his own brother Abel. And so John in this section points us back to the story of Cain. Pick it up in verse 12 with me again. He says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now it's interesting that John would encourage these believers to not murder. I mean, up to this point in this letter, we've seen that, that I think these believers are pretty solid followers of Jesus. He says some really encouraging things about them in this letter. And so it seems strange that the encouragement here uh, by John would be, hey, by the way, don't murder. But the reality is, I don't think John is after necessarily warning these believers against just murder. What John is getting at is the heart behind what led to the action. As verse 12 continues, he says, and why did he murder him? This is what John wants us to understand. The heart behind the action and the answer he gives us in verse 12. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now notice it doesn't say because his own deeds were evil, period. It says Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's, his brothers, were righteous. You see, I think what John is getting at is that his brother, Abel, was functioning like a mirror to Cain. And in working like a mirror, they exposed Cain's heart for what it was and Cain didn't like what he saw. Remember, both Cain and Abel went through the right motions. However, God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. What happened was in murdering his brother, the heart of Cain that God could see internally manifested itself externally by taking the life of another. When Cain brought his offering to the Lord, he went through the right motions, but the reality is his heart was filled with selfishness and envy and jealousy and bitterness and rage, and that manifested itself days, weeks, months later as he took the life of his own brother. See, the family of God ought not to be characterized by a heart of Cain. John says, we'll experience hate for sure. You see in verse 13, he says, you will be hated, but not by your brothers and sisters in Christ, by the world. 
Within the family of God, we should not be marked by a heart filled with the same things that led Cain to do what he did. We're going to say it like this today, that true children of God will not be marked by hate for one another. Marks of love in the children of God, the the, the negative is this, true children of God will not be marked by hate for one another. A true child of God will not be marked by a a continual pattern of selfishness and envy and jealousy and hate. The reality is, even as a child of God, we're going to fight these things, but we've said all along in this book, it's patternly, not perfectly. We're growing out of patterns of selfishness. We're growing out of patterns of hate. We're growing out of patterns of jealousy into greater patterns of love and humility and selflessness. A true child of God will fight against the heart of Cain, not embrace it. John Piper says it this way. He says, The human heart that is falling short in some way is so easily angered by people who are making progress or we're failing. Isn't that so true? Aren't there certain people in your life that, that you know you're trying to grow in a certain area and they're just, they're crushing it in this area and you're around them and you just, mm, I get angry. I kind of don't want to be around them. I remember in college, a great example of this, I was on a traveling music team, and there was a guy on my team who just, uh, he served. He was always selfless. Uh, we used to have to, like, iron our clothes. We would dress up for these churches, and, um, and he'd wake up extra early and iron my clothes. And it got to a point in the summer where I told him, I said, dude, do not iron my clothes, because it was making me mad, because I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to serve like you serve, but you're setting the bar so high. <laughs> you're making me look bad. But he just kept doing it. He kept setting his alarm early, wake up, serve, 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 love, love, love. And in that, my heart was exposed. John Piper goes on to say, he says, we don't want to be around these people because they expose our hearts. Now, the reality is, you and I, we don't usually kill them, but we have ways of tearing them down and taking them out in our heads, don't we? Sometimes it's just avoid them. You just don't go near those people. Sometimes it's focusing on their shortcomings, their weaknesses. Instead of building them up in their areas of growth, we choose to focus on their shortcomings to make me feel better about me. Sometimes it's, it's tearing them down. Sometimes it manifests itself in an inability to rejoice when they're growing. We have ways of tearing people down and taking them out in our heads And John here is saying, this ought not to be true in the family of God. That we are to love one another, to humble ourselves, to learn from one another. See, love will rejoice with those who are making spiritual progress, not seek to tear them down. We need to ask ourselves, can we rejoice with those who are growing in an area, and maybe even an area where we know we're specifically weak? Or do we tear those people down in our minds? If we know people, if you know people making progress in grace, making progress in patience and the fruits of the Spirit and joy, love, selflessness, kindness, self-control, purity, etc., etc., love will rejoice. Love will celebrate that, not tear them down. We, as the children of God, don't let our hearts be filled with the heart that led Cain to do what Cain did. Don't let the family of God be marked by hate for one another. Marks of love in the body of Christ. Number one, true children of God will not be marked by hate for 
one another. Now, John starts with the negative. He shows us and he tells us and he unpacks for us what does love not look like. But now, for the rest of our text this morning, we're going to begin to look at the positive side. And this is important for us to think about because especially in our culture, love is such a loose word. I can stand up here and tell you I love uh, my wife, I love my kids, I love coffee, and I love Philadelphia sports teams. And none of those, honestly, would be a wrong wrong use of the word love. But the reality is, my love for my wife better be categorically different than my love for Philadelphia sports teams. And if not, we got a problem. My love for my kids better be categorically different than my love for coffee. Same word, it's a different meaning. And so it's important that we take time to understand what does God say about what love is. And so John is going to begin to define for us what he means by love one another, starting in verse 16. It says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. A couple things I want to notice here, to point out here. The first one is this, God is the definer of love. It's interesting in verse 16, it says, by this we know love that, what's that next word? In verse 16, by this we know love that what? By this we know love that what? He, not me, not I, not how our culture says, not how the world says, not how I feel. By this we know love that he, God is love. God is the definer of what love is and what love is not. And here he begins to define for us what does God's word mean when it calls us to love one another. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So the reality of what love looks like is it's self-sacrificing. So love looks like self-sacrifice. Love looks like laying down one's life for another. Love looks like selflessness. It's compassion. It's empathy. It's, it, it moves us to empty ourselves for the good of another. And verse 16 tells us, in response to the love of Jesus laying down his life for us, Out of that will flow us laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we as children of God are to be marked by love. We know that that looks not like hate, but instead, number two, we see here, true true children of God will be marked by self-sacrificing love for one another. True children of God will be marked by self-sacrificing love for one another. Now, I think the tendency here is to maybe want to jump into just the, the give, give me the list. Give me the list. Give me the five ways that I can now sacrifice myself and, and give, me the, the, give me the three ways that I know I can walk out of here and I'm going to love the person next to me. I'm going to love my brother and sister in Christ. And, and that's fine, but I would say that misses the first step. See, the reality of what verse 16 tells us is that we know love because Jesus first loved us. The way that you and I are going to grow in love for one another is not by a practical list of how-tos, but by stopping and fixing our eyes and our gaze and our hearts on Jesus and the love of God poured out for us. The way that you and I will grow in self-sacrificing love is to stop 
and behold the glory of the love of God. A little book called The Gospel Primer says it this way. It says, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample inspiration to show God's love to other people. For I'm always willing to show love to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. The more I experience the gospel and the love of God, the more there develops within me a yearning affection for my fellow Christians who are also participating in the glories of God. You see, what we need is not the practical list of how-tos. What we need is to stop and look and be moved by the self-sacrificing love of God. That's why we join in with Paul as he prays in Ephesians 3. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father in heaven, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays and he cries out to God, God, let them know your love. And it's like he runs out of words. He says, just let them know the breadth and the height and the depth and the width and just the magnitude of the love that God has for them. God, let them know the fullness of that love so that then the self-sacrificing love of God flows out of them. You see, what we need is not a list of how-tos. What we need is to stop and look and be moved by the self-sacrificing love of God. John Piper says it this way. He shares this story. He says, sometimes we're so familiar with the spectacular that it doesn't move us as it should. He says, we have to look at something lesser, be amazed by the lesser, and then look back to really feel the wonder of the original. And so let's start with the lesser. It's the story of a group of American prisoners of war during World War II who were made to do hard labor in prison camp. Each had a shovel and they would dig all day and then they'd come in and and give an account of their progress and an account of their shovels. And so one evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard and shovels were counted. The guard counted 19 shovels and turned in rage on the 20 prisoners, demanding to know which one did not bring his shovel back. No one responded. And so the guard took out his gun and said that he would shoot five of them if the guilty prisoner did not step forward. After a few moments of tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head bowed down. The guard took him and killed him and turned to warn the others. They better be more careful than he was. When he left, the men counted the shovels and there were 20. The guard had miscounted. And the boy had given his life for his friends. Can you imagine the emotions they must have felt as they knelt over the boy's body? In five or ten seconds of silence, the boy had weighed his whole future in the balance and he chose death so others might live. Jesus said, greater love is no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. You see, to love is to choose suffering for the sake of another. Jesus has loved you this way only, oh, so much more. And consider now not only the life that Jesus sacrificed for us, but consider also what the sacrifice involved. You see, to get to the point where he could die, Jesus had to plan for it. He left the glory of heaven and he took on human nature so that he could hunger and get weary and in the end suffer and die. The incarnation was the preparation of nerve endings for the nails of the cross. 
Jesus needed a broad human back for a place to be scourged. He needed a brow and a skull as a place for the thorns. He needed cheeks for Judas's kiss and soldier's spit. He needed hands and feet for spikes. He needed a side as a place for the sword to pierce. And he needed a brain and a spinal cord so that he could feel the entire excruciating death for you. You see, what we need is not a practical list of how-tos. What we need is to stop and fix our eyes on the glory of the self-sacrificing love of God. Amazing it is when I stop to regard that God would consent to an anguish so hard, surrendering his son into mayhem and death, to torturous writhing till his final breath. Why does God forsake me? Alone, Jesus cried. Yet God left him hanging until he had died, that Jesus was willing to lay his life down, be scourged and insulted and wear a thorny crown. For one such as I, who had spited God so, amazes and blesses and makes me to know that greater a lover is no man than he who laid down his life for a sinner like me. You see, what we need is not a practical list. What we need is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so this morning, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the great lover of our souls, and we gaze into his eyes. We soak in the glory of the love of God displayed for us through the gospel, through the cross. And as we do, we just say, how could I not lay down my life for my brother or sister? Look around. Look up and down your, your, your aisles. Look up and down your rows. This is the family of God. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look next to you and tell the person next to you, your family. Look behind you. Tell the person behind you, because maybe the person sitting next to you is legitimate family. Look behind you and tell them your family. We're family here this morning. God is calling us to more than just walk through the doors, attend, and leave. He's calling us to self-sacrificing love for each other as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the way we're going to grow in that is not by me giving you a practical list. The way we're going to grow in that is sit and soak in the glories of the love of God displayed for us in Jesus. We as children of God are to be marked by love, and we know that doesn't look like hate. We see here this looks like self-sacrificing love for one another. But the reality is, I think this is easier for us to think about in generalities. It's really easy to sit here and verbally go like, okay, yeah, this is my family. Yeah, yeah, I, I love these people. I would lay my life down for them. Yeah. But then when it actually gets down to it, I mean, you saw the person behind you. I don't Would I really sacrifice for them? C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And I think John sees this. God knows our hearts. And so God's going to get after it with us and say, yeah, I know generality, generally speaking, I would lay my life down for you, but 
But we're going to move from generalities to specifics as the text continues. And so pick it up with me in verse 17. 1 John 3, 17. It says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so as John continues, he moves us from the generalities of, yeah, yeah, lay your life down for one another to a very specific example. And he gives this example of, 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 a, of a follower of Jesus, a brother or sister in Christ who's going throughout their life and, and they see another brother or sister in need. And, and it says of the one who sees his brother or sister in need that they have, um, they have material possession. It could literally be translated as the idea here, someone who has material plenty, especially compared to the one in need. And this believer sees another believer in need, and it says it, they close their heart against him or her. This person is not internally moved in the slightest, and not only are they not internally moved, but we can guess from the text that externally there's nothing done to help the person in need. And John really clearly says, how can the love of God, how can the Spirit of God, who has, who has loved you in such an extravagant way, how can that Spirit abide in you if you can so quickly turn your eyes, and not only your eyes, but your heart, to other believers in need? John sums it up for us in verse 18 as he says, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, John recognizes words are pretty easy. Words can be easy. But sometimes deeds, actions, they can cost a little bit more. They can be a little bit messier. They can take up more time. They require planning. Sometimes it requires me to actually lay aside my preferences for your good. That's costly. And so John tells us, don't just love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We are to be marked by love. And the third way that this fleshes itself out in our life is this. True children of God will be marked by love in action. True children of God will be marked by love and action. See, in pointing this out, John is giving us a, a fuller picture even of what it looks like to be one marked by love. It's a self-sacrificing love, and it's an active love. It's deeds. It's get in the car and go to the brother or sister's house. Deeds. It's, it's put food in the crock pot and bring a meal to a family. Deeds. It's mourn with those who mourn. Deeds. It's rejoice with those who rejoice. Deeds. It's action. And then it's truth. It's genuine. It's love that's full of integrity. It's love that, that, is, that is what you see is what you get kind of love. And, and I think what John is saying is that there's certainly a place for words in loving one another, but if it's only words, it's not true love. See, true love acts. And so at this point, I think we need to ask, how are we doing in actively loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is, is my love, is our love as a church, is it characterized by deeds or is it just characterized by a lot of nice words? It sounds good, but what do we really do about it? 
And, and so as we wrestle with that, I, w- I want to give you three marked by love questions. Three questions to help us wrestle with. How am I doing in, in, in being marked by love in my life? Am I someone who just loves in words and deeds or am I just words or am I someone who loves by by showing it, by deeds, by action? And so three marked by love questions. And the first one, we've spent a lot of time here, but I, I don't want to move past this. Number one, how can I consistently spend time meditating on the love of God? And we're not gonna we're not gonna labor here. We spent a lot of time here already, but the reality is we'll be marked by love as our time is marked by meditating on the love of God. And the reality for all of us in this room is we probably have people that we look up to as spiritual giants and we say, I would give anything to be like them. I would give anything to do what they have done for the kingdom of God and we admire them. And you know what the great equalizer between them and us is? 24 hours in a day. They had no more time than you and I have. How they spent it probably looked a lot different than how I spend my time. And I know we're all too busy, we're all too busy. You find time for the things that you love. I find time for the things that I love. Spend time meditating on the love of God. Three marked by love questions. Number one, number two is this. How can I sacrificially and actively love this expression of the family of God? How can I sacrificially and actively love this expression of the family of God? And here's what we're getting at with this question. Uh, You see, the family of God is is worldwide. We talk about the church and we use capital C church. The church, it's, it's spread throughout the globe. But all throughout the globe, there's these tiny little expressions of the family of God. Uh, you know, right now on Sunday morning across the south side, there's all these little family gatherings happening in, in different buildings across the south side as the church gathers and meets together as the family of God. And so in this local expression of the family of God, how are you, how am I sacrificially and actively loving this family? And, and I think for some of us, I'm not going to bash anybody, but I do, as, as a pastor here, I want to call some of us out of walk through the doors, attend church, leave, the end, until next Sunday at 9, maybe 9.05 if we're running late. Walk through the doors, attend, leave, the end, until next Sunday. God is calling you and I out of that. And he's calling us into a life marked by sacrificial, active love. And so if you're here and that's been your story, your story has been one of just, I just go to church, I I do the right thing, I can check the box. God is calling you out of that into so much more. You see, John 10, Jesus promises, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I think oftentimes as Jesus followers, we would say, I don't know if I'm experiencing this life to the full that Jesus promises. And for many of us, it's because we're not sacrificially, actively loving the family of God. And so for some of you, today needs to be the day where you step out of your seat and you step into the game. 
You step out of your seat as a spectator and you become a participator in the body of Christ and you use your gifts to serve and love the family of God and, and you serve on Sunday morning, certainly, but you get in a small group and, and you serve those in your community and you use the gifts that God has given you to pour yourself out for the good of your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Today needs to be the day for some of you to get out of your seat and get in the game. We've got to wrestle with how can I sacrificially and actively love this expression of the family of God? Three marked by love questions. The third one is this. How can I sacrificially and actively love someone specific in the family of God? Remember we said there's generalities and there's specifics. And there's ways that we can serve, I think, at church that stay pretty general without ever specifically sacrificing for someone. I'll use myself as an example. I could stand up here and I could sing and play the guitar every Sunday and, you know, serve the body that way. But Monday through Saturday, what if I never sacrifice anything for anyone specific in this body? What if Monday through Saturday, there's never one time I can look back on and say, I have actively and sacrificially poured myself out for your good. God is calling us to more than just even a Sunday morning general expression. He wants us to get specific. And so wrestle with, how can I sacrificially, actively love someone specific in the family of God? Who are you specifically sacrificing for? Are you choosing to suffer for anyone specific? Or are all of your decisions relationally based on comfort? Are they comfort choices? I'll love them, but the moment it gets uncomfortable, the moment it gets inconvenient, the moment that it starts to interrupt my schedule, I'm out. See, God is calling us to active sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we shift from the why can't I do these things to how can I? How can I sacrificially and actively love this expression of, of the church and maybe I can't do it the way they do it and, and yeah, maybe I am in a season where I am really busy but the question isn't, or the statement isn't why I can't. The question should be, well, how can I? And, 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 and I could give you all the reasons why I can't serve someone specifically and I don't have the gifts that they do and I don't have the resources they do and, but the question isn't why can't I? The question is how can I? How can you and I grow in lives marked by love? And as we finish our time this morning, we need to wrestle with that question. Is my life marked by love? If people were to walk around with you as you go to work, as you spend time with your family, as you're in your car, as you're by yourself, would they be around you and say, that is someone whose life is marked by love, and particularly marked by love for other Jesus followers. What is your life marked by?